Hey everyone, my name is Dan Quintana and this is the Physiology and Behaviour Show. This episode is a recording of a recent online seminar I did on moving your work from the lab to your living room and adjusting to a new way of working uh, in the current pandemic that we are experiencing. So, I hope you are keeping safe and I hope you enjoy this episode. How to adjust your work and taking it from the uh, taking it from your lab into your living room and adjusting to a new way of work because, uh, like everyone's saying, it is truly uh, uh, an extraordinary time that we're living in, and uh, a lot of us have to do work uh, do work a lot differently. Now, um, before I sort of get into this, uh, I do want to acknowledge that I know that everyone has a really everyone has their own situation at home. Um, I, I have a, a two-year-old daughter and uh, another uh, baby who is literally due any any day now. <laughs> so soon, I'm going to have two kids, and I, I think there's, there seems to be a lot of pressure that this time that we're using at home right now is a time to to to, to write all those papers, to get all your papers off your desk, to write that book, to catch up on all those things. Um, and but I, I really want to stress that you don't have to use this time to double or triple your productivity. The point of this talk isn't necessarily to increase your productivity, but it's to spend the the it's to spend the time that you have the best. It's to get the most out of the time that you have right now. So I do want to acknowledge that people have different situations, especially if you've got kids at home, um, especially if your friends or loved ones are, are sick at the moment, things will be quite difficult. So the point of this talk is more about how to optimize the time that you do have when it comes to how you're actually, uh, how you're actually working from home. So uh, before I continue, I want to tell a, a little story about how I eliminated this guilt, this guilt that a lot of us as scientists feel about, I should be writing right now. I've had this since uh, since my PhD. Um, you know how it is. You sort of you're, you're trying to relax on, 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 during the week, and at night you're thinking, "Oh man, I really should be writing right now. I should be doing that analysis. I should be in the lab." Exactly the same thing for the weekend. It's very hard to for for, for a lot of us, including me. It's a lot of it's it's really hard to actually enjoy enjoy your weekends and enjoy your time off. Um, but I've actually found a way to to eliminate this guilt most of the time anyway. And I ran a little experiment because I thought to myself, well, quite often you see a lot of people who are bragging about, yes, I, I, was, I was in the lab for, 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 for 10 hours. I'm in the lab for 50, for 60 hours a week. But quite often being in the lab or actually physically being at, at a certain place doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you're being productive and actually doing work that's valuable. Um, a lot of people are, are, are doing this, but they're just, they're, they're just on Facebook, which is fine if you're taking a break. But the length of time doesn't actually reflect the sort of work, um, the, the, the kind of work that has value. So I did a little, a little self-experiment a couple of years ago, and I wanted to ask the question, how much time in a given day or how many hours in a day can I actually work and do deep focused work? This is the sort of work where I completely switch off the internet, um, uh, turning off notifications, turning off distractions. How much work can I get done if I really put my mind to it? And um, over a couple of weeks, what I did is um, I, under, I, I started using the Pomodoro technique, which a lot of you may be familiar with, where I, I'm going to go into this a little bit more, where you take a block of time, um, be it sort of 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, and you work completely focused and then you take a break. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then you can do whatever you like. Um, and this Pomodoro technique, I thought to myself, how many Pomodoros or how many, hour, or how many minutes of a given day 
can I actually do um, this focused work? And eventually I figured out, well, I can do that. My absolute max, I can do seven of these a day, seven sessions, 40 minutes with a 10, 15 minute break and a break in the middle. And knowing that and figuring that out, that I only have these seven blocks of time in a given day completely eliminated the guilt that I felt at night and on the weekends. Because I knew looking back, hey, I've done all the work that I can for a given day. Uh, there's no more, any, any additional work that I do is going to be very poor quality. So I'm satisfied knowing that I've got these seven Pomodoro sessions in a given day. Uh, it's been a really handy way of actually doing that. So like I said, you work for a set amount of time, uh, you take a break and you repeat. I think the important thing with the Pomodoro technique is actually making sure you put measures in place so you don't get distracted. I don't trust future me. I know future me is going to get distracted. Um, the amount of, no matter how much willpower I have, I'm still going to get distracted. And it's almost, I'm sure we all feel it. It's almost re- reflexive where as soon as you sort of hit a speed bump in your work or you're a little bit bored or your mind goes somewhere else, you instinctively, you reach for your phone. Um, and, uh, and that can be a real time suck. So you need to put measures ahead of time. You need to put measures in place in order to actually stop yourself from doing that. Um, and, um, there's two tools. Obviously, you need a tool for your desktop or your laptop and you need a tool for your phone because these are the two biggest sources of distraction. Uh, on your Mac, there's an app called Self-Control. It's a free app and you can set for a certain amount of time that you want to block websites. Now, we can't just block the internet or pull out the power to our web, web, web routers because we need to use the internet for our work. We need to access papers, um, uh, email people, message people, etc. Um, but with these apps like self-control, you can actually specify certain lists of websites, um, be it social media websites, um, and news websites, whatever websites you find distracting. You can set these things up and then you can say, turn these off 40 minutes, turn these off for 30 minutes. Um, and you can't access these sites. And there are similar apps as well for, for, for Windows as well that do the same sort of things where you can actually specify a certain list of websites and for a certain time, they're completely blocked. Even if you turn off your computer um, and you turn it on again, the thing still still goes. So make sure you don't accidentally put it on for, for, for seven hours if you want to use your computer. Um, it's a really, really good piece of software and it's free. Um, and on your phone, um, um, there's a smartphone app called Forest, which is fantastic. It's a bit cutesy. You sort of, your goal is to, to grow your forest and for every 40 minute or 30 minute block, that you work focused, a little tree grows. But it's weird, but it, but it totally works. And you can use that for your, for your um, um, iOS and also for Android as well. Uh, so Forest is a fantastic app. So basically my work setup is, I'll know, okay, I'm about to start a 40-minute Pomodoro session. I'll turn on self-control for 40 minutes and I'll turn on Forest on my phone for 40 minutes as well and I'll get started. And I'll also turn off notifications as well. The only thing they can get through is if my wife is calling me, that's it. Otherwise, all notifications are completely done. Um, and the, the thing about notifications is it's not the initial distraction which gets you. Sure, you see that ping. You might read that sort of the, the, the Facebook notification or Instagram notification, but it actually takes you some time to get back into the groove. So it's not the 30 seconds you took to actually read the notification, but it's the minutes that it actually takes to get back in there. But if ahead of time you turn off your notifications, it's going to make it much, much easier to not get distracted. And then at the end of this Pomodoro session, then you can check all these things. Um, I would suggest that you start with, if you want to give this a go, I would suggest that you start with uh, 30 minute work blocks and then 10 to 15 minute breaks. 
And then if, if you feel that's your limit, that's fine. Stick with that. But if you feel you can do more, just extend that. So anywhere up to about, I think, I think I've tried 50 minutes and I can't quite do it, but 40 minutes or 45 minutes is the usual length of time um, that I use when I'm doing Pomodoro's, but find your own sweet spot. Um, and then, um, yeah, try sort of four work and rest blocks for, for a given day and see how you go. And then after you've done this for a couple of weeks, you can actually figure out how many Pomodoro blocks that you can do uh, for, for, for a given day or for a given week. And then you can be satisfied knowing that, yes, this is the work that I've got done. And then you can actually have guilt-free nights and, uh, and, uh, and guilt-free weekends. I think this is especially important now that we're all working from home. It's very hard to kind of separate. Um, it's, it's much easier to sort of separate work from home if you have the lab. But if ever, if, when you're working from home, especially if you're working in your kitchen or in your living room, it's much harder to actually go to, to sort of switch off. But if you're doing your Pomodoros and you know, I've done my six today, I've done my seven, and then you can switch off and you can relax. The really important thing to remember is that as scientists, we're in this for the long run. Uh, there's only so many times you can actually maintain the crazy amount. You know, of, of course, I understand there are if there are grants due or papers due or experiments to be done um, that you need to be that you need to put a lot of hours in. But doing this for a long amount of time is not sustainable. So keep that in mind that as a scientist, you're in this for the long run. And I think this is also a much better way to uh, to track your progress. Um, than looking at word count. A, a word count, you know, do, writing up a method section is much quicker and much easier than writing up a conclusion section. So looking at word count as a way of actually measuring progress isn't the most accurate thing. But if you actually measure your way of, I did 40 minutes worth of deep focused work, then that's a really good way of actually comparing your week to week as well. I think of all the things, attention is, is the most valuable resource you have, whether it's attention for the paper that you're writing, for the code you're writing up, um, or just whatever, you, or, or whatever you're doing. It's the most important thing that we have. So it's really important that we don't squander it. And I'm not saying that social media is a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a good thing. I'm going to go into this later. I'm going to go into why it's a good thing later in this talk. Um, but uh, it's important that you actually keep your attention for, for the task at hand. So as for some writing tips... I think one of the hardest things to, to do is to get past that blank page. You have that project, you open up your Word document and you see that blank page there. And, and I think it's really important to actually get past that initial speed bump. And to do that, start picking some low-hanging fruit. And the most obvious thing is writing your title page. Uh, I, I think writing your title page for me personally, uh, it's almost motivating because you can actually see, wow, this is the thing that I'm actually working towards, writing what you think to be the co-authors, writing the title, uh, writing the, affili the affiliations. Um, it, it sort of gives you that, that uh, motivation, but it also helps you get past that blank page. Uh, and there are also certain parts of the paper which are much more straightforward to write. Methods are methods. If you're writing up an experiment, you know what you did. So you can at least write those things up. So take that low-hanging fruit first to actually build that momentum and build that motivation for your paper. Um, if you're stuck, it really helps just to write out dot points, um, even just to fill the gaps for your introduction or for your conclusion or even for your methods if you're unsure how to actually space that out. So rather than actually having that blank page there and thinking, I need to write a, an amazing sentence first up, having dot points is a really good way of actually getting started um, and, uh, and getting some momentum there. Uh, one thing that's become quite popular in a lot of places is these shut up and write sessions. Uh, I, I love I love this title, um, and it's exactly how it's described. People get together 
they might book a meeting room or they might go to a cafe, they shut up and they write. Uh, quite often, they'll use sort of a Pomodoro type approach where they'll say, yeah, we're going to do this for 40 minutes and take some breaks. They'll get some coffees, they'll get some snacks. Um, but I think there's something really powerful about actually sitting together with a group of people and you're all, you all have this common goal of we're just going to actually write. Uh, and the good thing is between sessions, you can actually talk about the, the, the sort of stuff you were struggling with, whether it's just about the writing or whether it's about the content. Um, but it's really nice to actually do this with a group of people. And these shut up and write sessions have become quite popular and are done at, uh, at, at quite a lot of institutions. Um, but a lot of people now are actually doing these online. You can use Zoom to actually get together and have these shut up and write, comp- uh, shut up and write sessions with these colleagues. Everyone's there um, and you're sort of writing away, but you can still see or your colleagues there. So that's one way of actually increasing um, the, the, the amount of writing that you're doing by actually collectively getting together. Going, all right, we're, we're going to write. It's much easier and it's much more motivating when you have all those people there. Um, and uh, yeah, so, as, as mentioned before, Pomodoros or how many Pomodoros you're doing in a given session is a really good way of actually tracking how much your writing is doing and not necessarily words. Words is okay. Maybe you, you have to write a 5,000 word paper. Um, but using Pomodoros is a really good way of actually understanding how much work you've been doing and uh, look, look, look at that as a motivator rather than the actual words. Uh, and of course, bounce ideas off your collaborators. Your collaborators and your mentors, they want to help you. Much better that you bounce ideas earlier in the process um, when it comes to having your dot points than, than you actually spending the time and writing a fully formatted paper for them to go, oh, you should, you should delete that section. Better to do that much earlier in the process when you are writing your dot points. I think one of the things w- which really changed how I do my writing was I, I, was, I was so paranoid about um, that the writing was bad, and it probably was. It, I'm still not the greatest writer, but I think if you have this perspective um, that no one's actually going to read your first draft, then, um, then that sort of weight comes off your shoulders. Maybe by the second and third draft, your mentors or your colleagues might read it, but just think that first draft is just for you. So just write. Um, now, I've shared this earlier today on, on Twitter, but I, and it's a little bit controversial as well, but I don't actually think there's such a thing as, as writer's block. I actually think it's purely just a lack of information or a lack of inspiration. So, for me, whenever I'm stuck with my writing and I'm like, what am I going to write now? I switch, I, I, I close Word and I start reading papers, particularly papers, especially papers within the area or books within the area. But by doing that, it gives me some fresh ideas and once I actually have more information or once I'm more inspired, then it makes it much easier to get into my writing. Uh, another thing that I do is when it comes to the papers that I'm writing, um, even if the paper isn't directly related to the topic, um, quite often I'll have a journal, a, a specific journal in mind that I'm writing towards. I'll just read papers in that journal to understand the sort of things that people, uh, that the editors and reviewers are looking for uh, in that particular journal. Now, my, the first recommendation for a book, um, you can either order this electronically or, or, or as a physical copy, is this, this amazing book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, it just has a lot of fantastic tips and it's very well written on ways to actually do deep focused work and work that matters. So, if you're looking for a book, um, it's, it's a fairly quick, quick read um, and it's a fairly easy read. I'd highly recommend picking this up um, either as an e-book or, or as a physical copy. Now, when I'm going to change gears a little bit and talk a little bit, a little bit about woodworking. Um, when it comes to working with wood or working with lumber, um, quite often 
what happens is you've got, you get a lot of offcuts. You, you get a lot of sawdust when you're actually making your products. And uh, a, a long time ago, what would happen is people were working with wood, they'd get all their sawdust and they would just throw it away. Um, and they would just th- th- throw it at the tip. And they would obviously use the wood they were using, but they would throw away the sawdust. Until one day, someone actually thought, well, I could actually potentially use this and sell this because it's a value. And I think in science, we have exactly the same situation where a lot of the stuff that we're working with, we in our own work have a lot of sawdust, a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily present, um, but we can actually use and which is a value. And I think uh, especially now that a lot of people are working from home, there is a lot of sawdust potentially that we have with the work that we're doing. Um, uh, what one thing is a lot of people are now like me are doing presentations via zoom and online. And instead of just actually having it to the particular audience you're doing, um, you can actually, um, record your presentations and post them online. Um, so that the, uh, so that wider audiences can see them. Um, uh, literally the day that Norway shut down, I had a presentation. <laughs> I, had, I actually had a really big presentation at, um, at a, at a big conference that was, um, that was in Oslo. Um, but, um, I still use opportunity and I, I still did, I did the presentation and I filmed it like I am right do, doing right now and I posted it online. Um, so otherwise that would have completely gone to waste. Um, so there are ways that you can do that. And it's exactly the same thing for your posters. A lot of people had, uh, my PhD student, for instance, had a poster, um, that was accepted for a conference in New York. Um, but unfortunately the conference was, uh, was canceled and, um, but now he can just, um, take the poster and he can make it as per usual and post it online on a website like open science framework and people can still read it and people can still share it. So, Think about the things that you're doing in your your day to day, which I'm going to be getting back to a little bit when it comes to social media, and share your uh, and share your process and share what you're doing. Which brings me to the, my second work from home book recommendation, which is a book called Show Your Work. This was written by a designer who does a lot of visual design, but I think a lot of the examples are actually very relevant for science as well. Quite often with science, we're, we're, we're sort of obsessed with the final products, the final papers, the final presentations, um, yet we're sort of missing out on all the stuff that's happening along the way. And I think there's a lot of value in this when it comes to other people learning, but also as a way of actually establishing yourself as an authority in this area. It's one thing to actually go, here is my meta-analysis, but if you can actually show your process of how you did that, um, then it's a much easier way of actually establishing your, your authority in the work that you're doing. So, this is another great book that you can, um, that you can pick up as well. Okay. So, um, I know for a lot of people, um, they, it's, it's very clear what they need to do. Um, it's very easy for them to actually switch to, to sort of, it's almost seamless for, for their, for when it comes to their, their projects for what they were doing in the lab versus what they're doing at home. Um, but for a lot of people, They've had to, um, they've had to kind of drop what they're doing because they can't actually do lab work at home. Um, and there's, there's a lot of potential options for what you can actually do for your work from home project. So I'm just going to share a few tips of how to actually pick that. And I, I think when it comes to this idea of what to do, um, I think it's really important to think big picture. And when it comes to papers and projects, a really great way of thinking about it is what problem do you want to solve? What problem do you want to solve? Uh, for instance, writing a review paper, get, getting an overview of a research area is, is, is a big problem. Um, you could spend 
hours, weeks and weeks and weeks getting an overview and doing your own literature review, or you could spend half a day or you can spend an hour or you can spend half an hour reading a literature review that someone else did. That person was solving your problem. You could do that exact same thing for other people in your field. Um, the best papers are the ones that solve problems, whether it's an experimental problem, whether it's a research question, um, whether it's developing a new tool. Think of it like, what problem am I going to solve? Um, and uh, another good way of sort of thinking about projects is scratching your own itch. Um, to, to give an example, about a year or two ago, I was very interested in developing ways of uh, making synthetic data sets. Now, these are data sets, w- w- data sets which share the same statistical characteristics of original data sets, but none of the individual um, individuals in the synthetic data set actually are the same as the original data set. What that means is that you can share these data sets for other people to verify your analyses and to do exploratory work without jeopardizing the privacy of your research participants. And I thought, gee, this is this is super interesting and it's a problem that I wanted to solve. Um, and I, I ended up writing a, a tutorial paper about it, which was uh, published online um, in, uh, in eLife about a week or two ago. Um, but I was super motivated for that because I was trying to scratch my own itch. It wasn't something that I thought someone else would be interested. I, I knew that other people would be interested, but I was also motivated myself because this is a problem that I wanted to solve for my own research. So have a think about what are sort of problems that you come across within your own field and, and how can you actually address that? Um, of course, it's important to get feedback on your idea from, uh, from, from mentors and, uh, and, and colleagues as well. Um, uh, that can be a, a really big help, of course. And uh, you can get broader feedback by using social media, um, which I'm going to return to uh, later as well. Um, now, I think when it comes to choosing your project, a, a really good way of narrowing things down is to design your project with one specific journal in mind. Now, of course, you can change your mind because you're picking one journal doesn't mean you have to go through with it. But by doing this, it actually adds constraints. Um, I'm, I'm sure you all remember doing doing assignments in, in an undergraduate university and the, the assignments where they're like, you can do whatever topic you want are often the worst because there are so many potential things you can do. But as soon as the topic has a bit of constraints going, you have to do this uh, focusing on anxiety disorders or this has to be a paper written in this journal, uh, analyzing a paper written in this journal in this year, it becomes a lot easier. By actually uh, picking your journal, it helps constrain your project and it, it, it can become much easier actually picking what you're going to do. Um, and you can also better reverse engineer your project because you can look at the types of papers that are published in these particular journals and you can think to yourself, what do I need to do to get a paper like this? What skills do I need to learn? Who, which collaborators do I need to get in contact with? What do I need to do? By doing this, you can reverse engineer what you need to do to actually pick uh, pick these particular things. Okay. Um, one extra tip that I found is really useful is that you can make your job a lot easier by reducing friction at every opportunity and making things a lot easier. Um, one example is just, especially when you're looking for collaborators or you're asking questions or even when you're dealing with your mentors who can be very busy, um, is is you can reduce friction when you're sending important emails by keeping them brief with actionable questions. I think there's a big difference between what do you think versus do you prefer option A or do you prefer option B? And another tip that I've used is that when you're sending an email where you're asking an important question, uh, make sure that it actually fits within one smartphone screen. 
if people see this long email really realize they need to scroll, chances are they're not going to read it. So keep it brief and using the smartphone screen uh, approach is, is one way of doing that. Another thing that's going to make your life a lot easier is reducing friction when it comes to responding to peer review comments. This is something that we all have to do in our work. And um, as someone that's reviewed a lot of papers and been on both sides, um, I know that um, there's a lot, of, a lot of different standards when it comes to how people are responding to peer reviewers. And I think in this circumstance, do not make your peer reviewers work harder than they have to. And there are certain ways that you can do that. And one way is actually, instead of saying that we changed this thing in the paper, um, and then a reviewer, in order to verify that, will actually actually have to flick across to the paper, read it on the section, um, and that it either won't do it or it'll annoy them quite a lot. But it, as an alternative, within the response letter, you can actually copy and paste that exact excerpt, whether it's a sentence, whether it's a paragraph, and you can put that in there. You're reducing friction. You don't want to make your peer reviewers angry, or you don't want to, you don't want to annoy them, or you don't want to frustrate them. But by doing that, it'll make their jobs a lot easier. And I think it's much better to overshare. I've never had a, I've never had a, um, a peer reviewer go. Um, they added too much detail in their responses. I've had a few saying more detail is required. But if you if you want to err on on one side, err on having much more detail when it comes to responding to peer review comments. Another thing as well is um, uh, using Zotero for automatic citations. Of course, there are other bits of software, but I think Zotero is the best alternative um, because it's open source and it's free. Um, and it saves you a lot of time in the long run. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite baffled. I meet a lot of people who still don't use automatic citation software. I think if, if you're writing papers which have five to 10 references, maybe I can see. But beyond that, it's so much easier, especially if you're changing between journals that have different citation styles to actually do this. So I don't know, maybe I'm speaking to the choir here, um, but the, the, I speak to a lot of audiences where people still don't use automatic citation software. This is going to save you so much time. So I'd recommend doing that. And you can also collaborate and um, you can share um, libraries between devices. I've got my home desktop and I've got my work laptop and I can actually keep those two synced up um, via Zotero. Okay. Uh, Now I'm going to cover some things that you can do if you can't collect data in the lab. The first thing that I would recommend, um, which isn't necessarily research related, but I think is very important, is building your own personal website. Now, whether you like it or not, people are going to Google you. Um, If if you're a PhD student, if you're a master's student, if you're producing research, people are going to Google you. But the question is, what are they going to find? Maybe, if you're lucky, they'll find your profile on your university website, but I wouldn't rely on that. Unless you have a permanent position, I would not rely on the profile on university websites because you're going to move on. You're not necessarily going to stay there and you have less control of what they um, of, of what's published there. But I think one of the most important reasons to have your own personal website is that almost every single academic publisher allows you to post an author-accepted manuscript version on a personal website. What this means is this is the final Word document that was approved for your paper. If you convert that into a, into a PDF, you can post that on, on your personal website and, and people can actually read your papers there. Um, of course, there's a the whole debate around open access and that's for a different presentation. Um, but um, essentially, by doing this, any papers that are behind paywalls are now accessible if you're doing this. Um, I know basically every institution has their own institutional repository where you can actually post your papers there, but a lot of publishers have a one-year embargo 
So you can't actually post your author accepted manuscript. Uh, you have to wait a year until you actually do that. Um, so basically, your options are pay open access fees. Uh, and if you can do that, that's fantastic. Or if your university has a deal, that's great. Um, wait a year uh, and then your paper is behind a paywall or post an author-accepted version manuscript on a personal website. And I don't, I don't know of any publisher that does not allow that. And the bonus with that is Google Scholar will actually find, I don't know how it does it, well, it's Google, that will find the PDF um, of your author-accepted manuscript and link it to the published version of the paper. So when you search for your paper, the actual paper will come up and the journal that's published in, but right next to it, there'll be a PDF straight from your website. So I would highly recommend building your own personal website in order for you to actually, firstly, so people can actually find information about you, so they can contact you um, and they can find out about more, they can find out about your research, but also so people can actually read about your research. If your paper is behind a paywall, it is far less likely to be cited. Papers that are open access get cited more. That's a fact. Um, but if you can't afford open access fees, and that's fine, um, you can actually post this author accepted version manuscript to your website. And uh, even if you don't have publications yet, um, if you're an early PhD student or a master's student, that's fine. You can still post your project ideas there and what you would like to do. And you can post your preprints there as well. Uh, if you have basic experience with R, um, like you know, you could probably do like a quick sort of few hour course on basic R. You can build your website in about an hour. And I've put together a tutorial um, where you can do that all within R. And it makes a website which is tailored for academics. Um, so I'm going to post all this information afterwards and I'm going to post these slides as well. But I've written a blog post where you can actually go through and do this. And you can add all your publications there, information about your research projects, um, ways to contact you. These these websites, they look fantastic both on uh, desktop and on mobile, mobile as well. And if you only have a couple of publications and a little bit of our experience, it should take you um, just, just, just about an hour. So I would check this out because it's really valuable to have your own personal website. And it's, it's a great project to have if you're looking for something to do. Now, a second thing that you could do is to lift your social media game. Um, now, I think social media has been amazing for my career. In fact, I don't even think I'd be in academia still if it wasn't for social media, to be honest. Uh, and the one thing that I love is that it, the reality is there's only really four ways to get your research known nowadays. And that is to already be famous, to have a famous mentor, to repeatedly win the peer review lottery, um, or to actively contribute to social media. That is, by, by actively contributing to social media, you can actually get around um, because all those other three points, uh, they're, they're essentially gatekeepers. And it's very difficult to get your work out there uh, unless you're already known or unless you get past these gatekeepers. But with social media, it's much, much easier to get your work out there. Now, of course, um, there, there's a lot of gatekeeping in traditional publishing um, because the traditional media, that's uh, newspapers, um, radio, TV, they decide when they want to share your research. There have been so many times where I've done an interview with, with a newspaper and it's all been great and I emailed them going, oh, you know, um, when's, when's the piece coming up? They're like, oh, the editor didn't really sort of think that this week was the right week and then they just kind of forget about it. It happens all the time because you have less control. You're, this is up to the whims of, the, of, of editors and of, of other demands. Um, so you have gatekeepers there. And more importantly for the work that we're doing, um, scientific journals limit what it is published but more importantly, or worse, how quickly this happens. 
We all know how it is. It can take months, sometimes years for our papers to get peer-reviewed and to get published. But with social media, you can get around that. So we have our traditional publication system um, where you'll submit your paper. It'll go to some editors. They'll send it out for review. If you're lucky, uh, if you're extremely lucky, maybe within three months, it'll be accepted. Um, but, tradi- but typically what happens is that um, typically what happens is that you'll get your uh, your paper rejected and you'll have to do this all over again. I think my record for a paper is is four or five journals that I've tried and it's horrible. And all this time, your paper cannot be read either by the public or by the scientists. And that's an enormous waste. But with social media and preprints, uh, as soon as your paper is done, you can provide immediate access. So both public and the scientists uh, can, can, can read your papers immediately and you can get around. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying there's no value. Of course, there's value in peer review, um, but you can actually publish your work straight away. Um, by using social media and and preprints, um, so social media and also podcasts is, is another great way that you can get around these gatekeepers and and share your your research immediately. Um, now, at the moment, there are really sort of three ways that you can communicate your work and communicate your research, both to the public and to other scientists, and these are audio text and images. And, and right now, um, the, the predominant ways to do audio is radio and podcasts in terms of social media. The texts, it's uh, Twitter, Facebook and blogs and images. It's uh, Instagram, YouTube and TikTok. TikTok has become hugely popular. I think it's the most uh, downloaded app at the moment. And the growth is just is just crazy for, 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 for actually sharing images and for sharing videos. So, these platforms will undoubtedly change. I think um, I'm, I'm old enough to have had a MySpace account and maybe a few of you are, are as well, um, but that's dead. Um, but I, I don't think it necessarily matters what platforms are popular. Like, I don't care. Like, I, I love Twitter right now, um, but I have sort of no romance to Twitter. If, if, it's, if it, no, no one's using it in a few years' time, I, I don't care. All I care about is where people are paying attention now. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't, all these modalities are always going to be the same. It's always going to be audio. It's always going to be text and it's always going to be images. And you can communicate your work to the public and other scientists using one of these three ways. So if you're interested in getting into the nuts and bolts of how to use Twitter as a scientist, I recently wrote a book, um, which was, um, which is a, it's a free online book and you can go through, and this is a real practical guide, both from beginners to advanced on how you can use Twitter to share your research, uh, to find collaborators, um, and uh, and to and to get feedback on your work. So I'd highly recommend uh, checking that out. And those are the details there. Um, and um, just to give a quick summary, a lot of people the, the the first thing is like I I don't have anything to tweet. I don't know what to tweet. But I think it really boils down to two things: is that the best way to bring value on Twitter or to bring value on social media is to either to educate or to entertain. As scientists, we're all well placed to educate. Um, a lot of people think oh, I'm only I'm only a PhD student. I'm only in my first year. Well. Um, you, you, you can definitely share a lot of stuff that master students or that anyone's going to find valuable. So whatever level you're at, there's always going to be an audience for the work that you're sharing. Um, enter- entertaining is a bit trickier. Uh, it's a bit, it's a bit harder. So um, that's not necessarily something that you should be focusing on. But if you if you can entertain, go for it. But one thing that we as scientists can all do is uh, we is is to educate. 
Because the thing is, the, the the main two reasons that people use uh, social media or or, or or consuming stuff on the internet is two reasons. They either want to pass the time, just sort of scrolling through, um, or they want to save time. So by educating, you're helping people save time. Um, and by entertaining, you're helping people pass time. So when it comes to how to actually use, best use social media, think about educate or entertain, but as scientists, focus on educating and sharing your work and sharing your process. Uh, another thing that, um, that is the, the really good way of actually sharing your work is, uh, is communicating your work via podcasts. Um, I co-host a podcast called Everything Hurts, which looks at methodology and life in the biobehavioral sciences. And this has been a great way um, to, 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 to share the work that I've been doing, but also it's, it's, it's me and a colleague just t- thinking out loud, really. But we also get to actually meet uh, some, some really interesting guests and build collaborations and get to know people in that way. And uh, I, I quite like podcasts because I much prefer it to writing because writing takes a long time, but with podcasts, you're just talking and uh, it, it, it's, um, it's pretty straightforward to actually create your own. And um, it, I think it's a, quite an accessible way for your audience to consume information um, because people can do other things while they're listening to your podcast. For me, I listen to podcasts when I'm commuting, which means that now I'm not listening to many podcasts. Um, but also when I'm out in the garden, when I'm mowing the lawn, um, when I'm washing the dishes, when I'm doing chores, where I don't necessarily need to pay too much attention, but I can still hear stuff, podcasts work really well. And a lot of people, um, or a lot of people when they're doing monotonous lab work as well, will listen to podcasts too. So it's a really accessible way for people to get information in that they couldn't normally get if they're sort of reading something or watching something. Uh, it's a really great way of building your network. Um, quite often when we, when it comes to who we're actually going to invite on the show, I just think, who do I want to meet? Who do I want to talk to? Um, people will say, yes, it's amazing. If you ask someone to talk about their research, of course, they'll, they'll almost always say yes. So make sure you use that opportunity. And like I mentioned before, it's an efficient use of time uh, compared to uh, compared to other communication types as well. It's much. I, I could this entire talk would take me a couple of days to write out, but now that I'm doing this talk, because just because I'm talking, it's much easier and much quicker. And also, think it, it opens doors to talk invitations as well. Uh, I'm sure you know how it is. Um, you go to a lot of conferences and you see the same names from conference to conference often giving the same talks as well. Uh, and the reason or one of the reasons that's the case is that conference organizers want to play it safe. They want to invite people that they've seen before uh, or that they've seen talking before. They're like, well, that, that person gives a, a good enough presentation. I'm going to invite them back. But what that does is that sort of puts a perpetual loop in place where no new people are getting a chance because the same people get, get invited. But if you start a podcast, you actually have a way to provide a voice um, beyond these gatekeepers and people can actually listen to going, oh, that, that person um, seems to know a little bit about that subject. I'm going to invite them to give a talk. I think of all the talks that I gave last year, I'd say about two-thirds were purely as a result of the podcast. It's a really good opportunity uh, to get your voice out there, literally. Okay. Um, thinking about another way or another benefit of um, of looking at uh, social media is it's a way of actually getting fast feedback for your research. And one thing I've sort of one thing I've come up with is this idea of a fast feedback funnel, um, where of course a lot of the ways that we do research is that we're, we're working away, and the first time it sees a light of day is when it, other than other than the peer reviewers is when it's published as a manuscript, but 
quite often we know that papers can take a really long time to, 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 to go from sort of thinking of the idea of collecting the data, of running the experiment, of going through the whole peer review process. Um, and really, we don't even know how much impact the paper is going to have until well after the paper has been published. Um, this is sort of assuming that you use citations as a way of impact, which is probably a, not the best way, but a better way than, than picking the impact factor of the journal that you're in, for instance. Um, but all that to say, it takes a long time to actually understand the impact or the interest in your work if you're waiting for the manuscript to get published. But by using this fast feedback idea, you can get feedback much earlier. So you can use social media to sort of talk about your ideas. You can sort of like the amount of times I've, I've, I've tweeted something and people will go, that's a bit dumb. <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing, but it saves me a lot of work. But other times I've tweeted stuff, tweeted ideas, um, put together little tutorials on Twitter, and there seems to be a lot of interest. So that's given me a quick feedback going, oh, well, there's a bit of interest in that. And then that'll actually evolve into something a bit more, um, uh, a bit more lengthy, like a blog post. And if there's demand for that, then that can actually evolve more to a preprint and to open data. And the great thing about preprints is that people can actually read and comment on your work much earlier than when they're actually going to read the manuscript. And I've had a lot of people um, provide comments on my preprints and, and save me uh, a lot of mistakes that, 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 that wouldn't have been found otherwise. Um, so, yeah, preprints are, are a fantastic way of, of, of sharing your work and I'd highly recommend um, doing, that, uh, uh, doing that yourself. So, uh, I'm going to wrap up so I can leave as much time as possible for, for questions on, on, on any topic that I've talked about, um, whether it's sharing your work, um, whether it's doing meta-analysis, uh, tips for writing, any sort of stuff. But I, do, I just do want to finish with a few final thoughts. Um, firstly, I think that the current pandemic crisis that we're experiencing is going to shape the way that we do science in the future. Um, even when things go back to normal, so to speak, we have no idea how, how long it's going to be. It is going to change the way that we do things. People are going to start rethinking, do we need to have as many conferences as we're, as we're having? Um, do we need to have as many visits overseas as we're having now? Um, uh, and people are going to find ways or people have now found ways of actually doing work online. So I think it's really important to be able to adapt to these new ways because science is going to be done differently as a result of this. Um, the, the second thing that I think this highlights is that uh, it's a real big bonus to learn skills that are applicable across disciplines. You never know. Usually I would say this because sometimes um, uh, different trends sort of come and go in different areas uh, are, are more attractive than other areas. But in, in this case, some people just can't do, can't, can't do research for, for, for practical reasons. But if you're learning um, skills that are actually applicable across disciplines, for example, meta-analysis, then if one thing stops, then you can use that for other areas. And the, the final thing I want to say is don't put too much pressure on yourself right now. Um, for a lot of people, even if the, even if they don't have to, to to care for kids or for family members, it's really hard getting work done right now. There's a lot of stuff going in. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. A lot of people. It's very tempting to do so-called uh, doom scrolling, where you're scrolling through, looking for the latest statistics in, in whatever country, um, and people are, are writing less. Um, it's very easy to see people posting on social media. Oh, this is great! I'm getting so much writing done. But of course, people only ever post their highlight reels. Um, uh, when it comes to what they're sharing. So don't get too hard on yourself if this is a time that you're not getting much stuff done. And, and like I said at the beginning, um, think about uh, getting the most out of the time that you have, even if you have kids. Uh, even for me, um, uh, we've, we've had to split 
our, our, our time between me and my wife. Half the day, I'm, I'm, I'm with our daughter. Half the day, she is with. So we just have to make do with the time that we have. Don't be too hard on yourself with the work that you're doing and do the best that you can with, with the time that you have. 